OHL hockey is back. This is the Farwell and Vogue podcast. Originating from the 570 News studio in Kitchener. Here are your hosts, Mike Farwell and Chris Pope. You know, shout out to Bernice. Another fantastic job by the Owen Sound Attack media room attendee, Bernice. Go back to a previous episode of the Farwell and Pope podcast to check out an interview with Bernice, who's been here since the beginning of time. Uh, That is about the time she arrived. As soon as time began, Bernice got here, and we're actually in the rink at the uh, the Lummer, as the kids call it, the Bay Shore here with the Rangers attack game about to start, and she is absolutely one of the highlights. I mean, along with Fast Freddy Wallace, but you see Bernice when you come to this rink, and even on a night like tonight, we've got a nasty snowstorm happening outside. Even folks up here in Owen Sound, there's a lot of talk about fans not showing up, but Bernice has got things running tickety-boo down in the media room. To show you her commitment level to her job in the media room, not only did she brave the snowstorm to come and look after the media room food and the coffee and whatnot, she was in the hospital today. She showed off her IV mark just to let everyone know. I was in the hospital today. Still made it out, though. That's what we call commitment. I got that same story from the last time she was in the hospital. I missed it this time. But, yes, that and she still has time to dye the hair. Got that little purple tinge going? I told her today, I said, Bernice, you're the best-looking media room attendant in this world, and it's not even close. She said, oh, not me. Look at all these wrinkles. I said, that's experience. (laughs) So shout out to Bernice. And what an experience it was coming up here because of this snowstorm that we drove through. I had to drive myself. I came from Toronto. How was the drive from Waterloo? We left a little bit earlier than usual and actually made pretty good time. Two hours, 15 minutes when it's usually about two hours. So no complaints on our end, but it is blowing pretty good out there right now when we look out the window. So... I mean, I know there's a hotel right next to the arena up here, but uh, I'm hoping I'm back for my job on Thursday morning. I don't blame you. I decided I'm going to my cottage tonight. Gonna, I don't know if I could pull into the driveway. That there's that much snow because no one's been up there since the weekend, but I'm thinking I'll just beach it and figure it out in the morning. Why not? It's that type of night. Look at the week we have had. What we try to do on this podcast is take you on the road where we go, and our weekend after a Friday night home game involved a whole lot of bus time, hours on the bus as we went up to Sault Ste. Marie, and I'm telling you, even, even our big guest on this podcast, the general manager of the Greyhounds, Kyle Raftus, warned us when we set up the interview with him, it's cold. I mean, it's even cold for us up here in Sault Ste. Marie. And he was not telling a lie. No, he wasn't. If you want to know exactly how cold it was, look no further than Twitter. Check out our Twitter handle for a video us walking the three minutes it takes to get from the uh, hotel to the arena at Farwell underscore OHL and at underscore Chris Pope. To say we've put on a few miles on that bus this week and weekend going to last weekend would be uh, an, an understatement to say the least. You mentioned the trip to and from the Sioux and now to and from Owen Sound on a midweek game. I just want to point out to the listeners of our podcast who may have missed the last time or the last couple times we've been up here at the Bayshore. The highlight of coming to the Bayshore for me, A, the French fries, B, Bernice, C, there is a bowling alley here in Owen Sound named The Bowling Alley. <laughs> That's its name, The Bowling Alley. There was a coffee shop I went to one time we were here. It must have been playoffs. Was it playoffs? Because I had time during the day, which we never have in Owen Sound because we're always in and out. But something about a frog. The lily pad, the leaping frog, I don't know. But it was a frog coffee shop. Loved it. Sat down, read my book, made some notes, drank a coffee. Good folks up here in Gray County. If you're looking for a spot, Boot and Blade. Great breakfast. <laughs> All right, so let's get down to the uh, the brass task. Some news out of Ranger Land this week. And finally, 
Jay McKee names a captain, and it ends up being Ricard Hug. Your thoughts? A lot of people say finally because of the time of the season that it happens. Listen, I don't think there is a timeline for things like this. Gone certainly are the days of having a captain to start the season because hello Toronto Maple Leafs who still don't have one and may go a season without one. So I think that this coaching staff uh, who sees the players far more up close and personal than the rest of us and has a pretty good idea of what they're looking for in a captain, they waited as long as it took for that captain to emerge and maybe they were content if that captain never did emerge. But they found that captain who, in the words of Jay McKee, checks all the boxes in Ricard Hug. I think it's a great choice. This guy away from the rink, what I like about him from the interactions that we get is he's very serious about what he's doing here in this league, but not to the point where he can't let loose and have a personality. I couldn't agree more, and I just want to point out, people on Twitter came at me a bit because of the timing of this captaincy name, and I you're, I don't understand how you can actually believe that this is a bad time to name a captain. Jay had his leadership group. He talked about it. He was waiting for someone to step up and take the reins. This is a franchise that has been around since 63. It is not just a gift. You don't give someone a captaincy on any hockey team and expect them to be a leader. You give the captaincy to anyone that is a leader. That is how you get the C on your jersey, by acting like you're the captain day in and day out, whether you have a letter or not. The, the premise of thinking that, oh, we'll give someone the C and watch what he does. No, that doesn't work. It, that's not how it works, especially not in a legendary franchise like Kitchener. The low of the low, and I'll tell you, this is probably why it went to Ricard Hug. Plain and simple. The low and low of this season came in a loss to the last place Flint Firebirds on home ice. It was embarrassing, and I have no problem saying that. I'm sure everyone in the room would call it the same thing. Then they went up and had a very tough opponent in the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And what did Ricard Hug do? Three assists, including on the game winner. He was a beast in that game, and you want someone to come back and lead you after a loss like that. There is no doubt in my mind Ricard Hug had something to say to the team about how embarrassing that loss was. And if you want to look at it at an even broader scale, he was a captain of the Sweden under-18 team, and he wore an A at this year's World Juniors. So enough of this that, oh, too late, and that wasn't the right guy. Jay made a great decision. It's funny. I joked with Jay about the assist on the game-winning goal versus Sault Ste. Marie in overtime, which was a beautiful behind-the-back no-look pass to Jonathan Yances for the winner. And I said, did you make the decision in that moment when he set up that game-winning goal? Jay had a good laugh. And then, by the way, Ricard Hug, that assist was one of three in the game, did not get named a star of that game. More on that in just a moment, but let's go because we both agree. We think it's an excellent choice on the part of Jay McKee. So from the head coach of the Kitchener Rangers, why did you decide to put the C on the Swede? You know what? It's it's what doesn't he bring? I think the only thing that we were kind of holding back on with him, and, and it's something that... Um, you know, we, we did some team building exercises about six weeks or two months ago where uh, the players would uh, anonymously um, let each other know what were some of the strengths as a person and player that that guy brought and what were what we called some areas of improvement. And, you know, the only real thing with, with Ricard, and what's good about that exercise is players don't just hear it from us, it's coming from their peers, the guys that, you know, they care about and guys that they see every day and, and compete with and, and the one thing with Ricard was that um, they, his teammates actually wanted him to speak more uh, they all 
have a ton of respect for him. He's a, he's a great person off the ice. He's a leader on the ice. Um, and, you know, part of that is, is, is maybe the language barrier. He speaks good English, but it, it would never be comfortable going to a foreign country with being the only Swedish player, the only English-American player if we were over in Sweden and being that guy that's rah-rah all the time in the dressing room. That, that's hard to do. So, so I think he learned that the guys respected him, wanted to hear a little bit more from him. I think he's worked at that. Um, that was really the only thing that we were hesitant on earlier in the season. Um, obviously, when you have a captain, it's a guy that you know needs to be respectful to the younger players, needs to be a leader on the ice, off the ice, whether it's in the weight room, whether it's a pregame skate. Um, it's a guy that you can put anyone on his line and he's going to work to make that player better. He's going to have great body language when things don't go well. Um, he, he checked all the boxes. We just wanted him to to converse a little more, speak up a little more. And I think once he realized his teammates wanted to hear more from him and respected what he said, um, he got a little bit more vocal. And that's not saying he's in there rah-rah all the time. That's just when he speaks, guys listen and they, they respect what he says. And, and I think he has more confidence in doing that now. And and um, so that's why it maybe took a little bit longer. Um, but he really does now, I think, check all the boxes. And, and I think he's a great example. Um, we have some other guys, I think, that were definitely contenders to wear the C. Uh, but, but like I said, they need to check all the boxes. And there's guys in that room that are very close to having the ability of wearing a C. I want them to learn off Ricard Hug as well. Not just our Reed Valads and Langdon's and Sbrangos or Vukovic's guys that are going to be future leaders. Um, I want our older guys that are going to be back next year to to know and fully understand, you know, what it takes to be a captain and and learn off a guy like Ricard Hug if he's uh, if he's not here next year. So there you go, a lengthy answer. One of the things, by the way, I really like about Jay McKee. You ask him a question, and he. He tells you, and, and I mean, what is that, two minutes plus of answering why the captain is the captain, but good on him. So before we heard from... Hold on real quick. You mean it wasn't just a split-second decision and he made this off oh. the cuff? Calm down. Shockingly, no, he gave it some thought. And in fact, I'm sure this, yeah, we just heard. The, <laughs> the coaching staff has been thinking about this for some time. So I mentioned before we heard from Jay about naming Hug the captain that he had three assists on the Rangers, or in the Rangers win, 4-3, over Sault Ste. Marie, in the Sioux, this past Sunday. And I want to I preface this just simply by saying, I really do love the Sioux. If you have already gone to check out our Twitter feeds like Poper told you to do, at underscore Chris Pope, at Farwell underscore OHL to see the video, you'll hear Poper saying, it sucks up here. I love it, and we're just having some fun. But I really do, I love it. I love going up there. I love the people. I think what the organization is doing and has done is pretty special stuff in this league with the consistency they've had over a number of years, and that's what we're going to hear from when we talk to Kyle Raftis in just a second on this podcast. But I, so I, I feel bad throwing this out there because I don't mean to pick on Sault Ste. Marie, but the three-star selections following that game that the Rangers won were an absolute joke because all three went to Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, including Matthew Valalta. God bless him. But he allowed four goals. I'm sorry. I think Valalta is one of the best in the league. I think Sault Ste. Marie is a great city with great people, and it's a great franchise. I mean that. But you gummed this one up. So I, I tend to get on this really soapbox every once in a while through the season. And I, I often will get the responses, oh, stop it. Who cares? Oh, this is just typical. You're trying to get followers on Twitter. It's really not true. I, I think that the honest-to-goodness truth of it is 
if there are three stars in a game, it's not hard. You, you give two to the winning team and, and one to the losing team, except in the case where it's a blowout. Something like that. It just makes sense. And there are all these excuses about, well, they, I can't tell if it's they send the stars down five minutes into the third or with five minutes to go in the third. But even still, if that's what they're doing in the Sioux, it was a one-goal game. You, you, can't, you can't tell me there were only stars from one team. So if you want to change this to become the home team stars or the home players of the game, that's fine. But the system we have right now is the three stars. So play it square. Please play it square. I even went so far as, and that's why I've decided to rant about this again, because I put out a Twitter poll. I know it's not scientific, okay? But I simply asked a question. I pointed out that when I was a kid, Hockey Night in Canada wasn't done until I saw the three stars on the television screen watching CBC. Do you still care about the three stars? And I got 513 responses, which I think is a pretty good sample size, and it was almost dead even. 51% said no, 49% said yes. So I'm st- that's close enough for me. I'm going with the underdogs, the 49% who say they still care about the three stars. We still have the three stars. If you want to change it, lobby for the change. But as long as we have the three stars, you got to pick them square. I'm going to tell you one more thing. One more thing, and then I'm going to stop. But I've often talked about the three stars in Kitchener, how we are a part of the selection committee. We are the selection committee, okay? And I've only done that trying mostly to protect you because I take a lot of heat sometimes on I three don't stars. Care. Thank you. So it's up to you and I to pick the three stars in Kitchener. And the real challenge is that we want to do it right, and we're trying to do a broadcast. So we get little 30-second windows of commercial time during our broadcast for us to say, oh, by the way, who do you think looks good tonight? And then by the time we start the conversation, the commercial's ending, so then we have to wait till the next commercial. But, big but here, even with that scenario in Kitchener, we're still, sometimes we're late sending them down because we want to make sure we've got it right. In a game that's tied late, we send, thing, we send stars down before overtime saying, here are three star combinations, the game-winning goal gets one, and here are the other two depending on the winning teams. If we can do that while doing a broadcast, your game staff can do that with less than five minutes to go in the game. Get it right. Every market, please, I still love you, Sault Ste. Marie. And in full transparency, normally you just look at me and you say three stars, I write three names down, and you either send them or you go, really? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, what game are you watching? Anyway, regardless, about the three stars, I'll echo what you said for anyone questioning that it's you just getting followers. When you've reached as many followers as you have, you don't notice when the number changes. That's how big of a deal you are. Okay, okay. One of those followers, though, Steve Spot, and I'll echo what he said. Take the two points and a tough barn to play on. And in that tough barn, though, they're a very tough team to play against, in large part because of our guest this podcast, general manager of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, Kyle Raftus. So despite us just talking about Muyos, Kyle, um, <laughs> and how delicious and uh, good that media room food is, I think it's uh, second place to the season you guys are having right now. Did you expect after last year's run for you guys to have this kind of season? I, I think whenever we're looking at expectations of coming into a year, it, it's really, I think it would have been tough to predict this just because of looking at the not only the crop of players that we had to replace from last year but the entire staff we lost a few scouts in the off season, and it was really a, a chance that there was a lot of optimism internally but because we had to see how everyone was going to gel out that was too hard to guess right out of the gate but I think it's something that every season we've come into over the last couple of years it's always been about how can we 
get the individual player up to speed as quickly as possible and then you know as the year progresses it improves the team and then we kind of hopefully gel as a team when we need to at the right time so to answer your question uh, I don't think you could have guessed it at this point how do you how how challenging is it to continually maintain that culture season after season I, I think it's it's one of those things that can snowball in in a good way to Mike because I think when you're replacing coaches that are like my first year we had Sheldon Keefe here obviously he's gone on to great success Drew Bannister came in to replace him with Joe Sorella Ryan Ward all three of them go on to American League and I, I think it just makes it that much more appealing and it I think it's it's like anything when you everybody's kind of seeing the success and seeing you know that they're giving an opportunity to give their own stamp on a team I think it makes it that much more appealing and no different as a player when you're kind of bringing in a player you know, we have a plan in place for each one of them, whether they're a late round pick, free agent, you know, early round selection for us. And it's something that if we can put them in the right opportunity to, to fit their skill set, I think it helps. And so I think we look at it from a coaching side and player side of the same same style. You lost eight big players from last year's team, your coaching staff, and you just mentioned you lost scouts, too. What was the offseason like for you? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know what, it's uh, to circle back to my first comment, like we kind of went through it my, after my first year. So it's funny, not only when you're watching games now, you're watching for other staff too, because I just feel like it's just going to happen at some point. So it, it's kind of a, I, I think it's, it's a great thing for the organization because it re-energizes it a little bit. And it's something that we, we get to grow our network. I think everybody was real excited here to be here when, they, when they're when they hired. And then when you get fresh faces, everyone's that much more eager to jump into it too. It doesn't get stagnant. There's not a, oh, you know, what was me? What, this wasn't the team. Like there was, there was a, a real good energy. And I give a lot of credit to John D and Jamie Tardoff and Jordan Smith for coming in with that. Because I think it would have been easy for them to come in and say, well, we're returning only, you know, a couple guys and we're new here. It's young players, you know, and kind of manage expectations. But they jumped in and they had a lot of enthusiasm. They've been working hard with it. And I think it's paid off. We're sitting here in your office in the arena for this conversation. And I don't see a safe around anywhere. I don't know that you're going to just expose all of the secrets. But while we're on scouting, uh, as an example, Morgan Frost is a late fourth rounder to your hockey club. And he just scored his hundredth as a Sioux Greyhound. I mean, he's just been incredible uh how much how much can we get out of you about the secret to the success i mean scouting is obviously a big part of it but you guys have been continually nine straight uh, years you've sent somebody to the prospects game that kind of thing which is a chl record how are you doing it well i think for us it's it's you know people talk about you know draft lists and how they prepare and we look at it there's three ways you can acquire a player obviously it's through a trade which we we like to think we're aggressive on but at the same time we just we don't just add players or subtract players just to do it or, or just to kind of appease everyone it's more so how can we benefit the team and I think when you're talking about you know the draft's always going to be there import selection and it's something that when we're trying to build out our roster and look at our draft it's not necessarily looking for the best OHL player it's who's going to be the best Sioux Greyhound so I think when we're always approaching it it's who's going to fit with what our needs are and sometimes there's players that aren't a fit somewhere else that might be a fit for us and you guys have been around long enough to see how that sometimes it's just not a fit and we try and really go after the players that are going to fit what we do well and I think that's something that gives them the opportunity to come in and have success and that's how you develop players and I think the name of the game here isn't necessarily the draft it, the draft's 50% and then 50% is the development side of it because there's lots of good players that come in and don't take a step and there's lots of good players that you know come in and it doesn't matter where they go they're just going to be elite players but I think for us 
and this is no one to blame myself because I'm the one who's traded them away. We haven't picked in the second round in, in four years. So I think it's something that we've had to find those guys, and our, our scouting staff does a great job. And I think it goes from synergy from scouting staff right to the coaching staff of what we're all trying to find, and that's the next Sue Graham. So along those lines then, you have to get the player here to develop them. And we've seen occasions in this league where players say, I'm not going to City X or City Y. We are in the northernmost outpost of the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, how do you make it attractive? And, and have you had trouble? Do you have to look at guys and say, do you, do you know they're not going to come up here? You know what? Um, it, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's trouble with it. I think for us, just because when you look at high-end players in their minor midget year, their schedule is jammed. So we don't even get really the opportunity, which is unfortunate to bring a lot of players up throughout the year to recruit on that side of it. So it's a little bit of in the living room, kind of painting a picture and laying out a development plan. And I think in my first year, it was a little bit uncertainty because they weren't really sure, you know, how is everything going to play out just on my side of it. But I think since we've been able to kind of have a little bit of success here and, and you could kind of use those examples of players that are recent coming through the program, I think it's really helped. So I, I think for, for us, it's never, I don't think there's an issue players reporting or wanting to play here but it's still like anything you don't want to get comfortable with it and we try and still be really aggressive with who we're trying to attract I want to go back a little bit you said that it's not uh, always just looking at who's going to be the best OHLer but who's going to be the best Sue Greyhound and you've said that a couple times in articles that I've read in your mind what is a good Sue Greyhound well, I think for us, um, whenever you've looked at the roster, it, it's it's a creative player, a player with high skill, high hockey IQ, and plays with some pace. And I think that's whenever we're trying to find a player, whether it's a defenseman, you know, that those three attributes that I mentioned, that's going to be on closing space on a on a player, attacking players, and then being able to get going and transition in the same way. And that's how you kind of can create these five man units that we use. And and I think when we're trying to bring in players that if they struggle with whether you know whether it's slipping pucks through the middle of the ice, you know, closing on someone, how do they escape uh, four checkers on the back end? And then on the other side of them, the forward group, how are they creating space for the line mates? Not just getting into that stagnant spot where you're a young player in this league, get on the ice, don't make a mistake, get it in deep, bump into someone, and then get off on the way back. Like, we don't want players that come in and just try and survive because you usually find in a year later, everyone doesn't know what to do with that player. And then they, you know, you found that maybe they need a fresh start somewhere else, or maybe it's just they weren't the player you thought they were going to be, but maybe they didn't get the opportunity to be that player. So we try and bring in players that are going to play with a lot of confidence. And, you know, you can't just sit a player down and, and tell them to play with confidence. They have to believe it themselves. And I think it, part of that puck moving and, and those attributes that they need to check off those boxes for us, I think really, really helps them when they step into our lineup. I think part of that then leads to what you've mentioned before is that development. Once they're here, developing that player. How does that come about? Because you, you've mentioned three coaches in your time here now. Is it the the development that you want as a general manager to input? Or do you leave a lot of that up to the coaching staff and stuff? I think we, we set out a plan early in the year for each player. And it's it's funny, a lot of it kind of blends into itself. A lot of the first-year players are on the same kind of development plan. A lot of second-year players. Because there's pressure for every player, whether it's you know Morgan Frost or Barrett Hayden that are have signed their NHL contracts, now they want to play World Juniors. You get guys that are coming in at 16, trying to make their name in the league. 17-year-old, they're going through their draft. There's just like, as you know, every year there's, you know, 18-year-old, you want to sign a contract. Like there's every year there's that pressure on them or something else that's on their mind, and you want to kind of simplify it of, this is how we believe you can get there, um, and let's build it out from their off-ice program. And Because, you know, even going through as a player, there's nothing worse than at the end of your meeting someone saying, hey, 
hey, Chris, you got to get bigger, stronger, and faster. Like, that's every player in this league. It doesn't matter what. So you try and articulate that as good, as much as possible. And as we joke with players at training camp, it becomes very clear then of who should be there and what spot they should be in. So you try and do that as best you can, and it, you know, usually you get good feedback from them on that side of it and a good buy-in and what type of work they're going to put into it on top of it. I was always told I needed to get smaller, not bigger. <laughs> I need to get bigger. So there you go. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, three different ways to acquire a player, and one of them is through the trade route. You obviously went out and did that in a big way last year with the Radish and Sambrook deal yeah. in particular, and, and you spent a lot of assets in terms of draft picks and a good young player to do that. Traditionally, then, the next year would be that sort of reset, and you might be selling off assets you have to recoup the assets you have on the roster to recoup some of those draft picks. You obviously didn't do that this year. And there was a lot of conversation about what, what's Kyle Raftis going to do up right. in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, at what point did you did you know? Like, Obviously, with the team going so well, did that force your hand into standing pat, so to speak, this year? Well, I think it's it, it comes down to when, when this whole year started, it was it was going to be... We knew we had elite players in elite positions. You know, Matt Callowell, Jordan Sandbrook on the back end, Matt Volta in net. You know, we had two of probably... The, you know, we're biased here, but we think we have two of the best centers in the league. So right down the middle of... You take any textbook of how you build a team, we, we were real comfortable with that spot. But as you've seen over the last few years, it's usually not the top-end teams that win because of just those top-end talent. It's their, their depth in their program. And I think for us, when we saw the, how the young players were starting to develop, and you really got a taste of that through the World Junior uh, time, when you saw our, a lot of our younger players look around that there's no one that's going to help us tonight. It, it's, it's on us or it's going to get ugly. And I think they went on a great run there. And I, I give them a lot of credit to you know pushing us in that spot. And and I think with our older players, they weren't necessarily looking to go anywhere either. So I think that's a, a side of things that people don't read into a ton. That It's not a case that if a player is a great player for you for four years and you're having a great year, they're having a lot of fun for it with the new staff. Is there a time when let's you know evaluate the situation sure we did look at a lot of different areas but we just felt the return of what we were gonna we were looking at for a lot of our players and the impact it wasn't going to guarantee any change in the team for next year so I think for us it's what kind of development can we get from those young players because we still feel like there's a lot of growth that can be done and I think that's what we're seeing right now is that a decision that's made a month before the deadline, a week before the deadline, or is it a deadline day where you're still thinking, I don't know what I'm really going to do? No, I, I think you. it's like you have a plan a month in advance that changes every day, I think is really how it goes. Now, go, le- leading a few days up to the deadline, I don't think there's much I can change because I think there's there's always little tweaking deals I think you see kind of on that day or leading up to it, but a lot of the big deals, like they take time and it's not just because of the number of picks or whatever it might be, but you can't necessarily just pull somebody in and say, this is where you're going and this is the selection. So I think that are the selections are getting a return. So for us, it was kind of, we had an idea how it was probably going to shake out. It did shake out that way, and it was something that we're comfortable with, and I think everyone's still excited about the group. Real quickly, you mentioned how those big deals come about. Obviously, the big deal last year. I just want to go back to it and how sure. something like that does come about because you obviously had the guys that you wanted in Radish and uh, Sambrook. When a deal like that has come about, do you and Dave Brown talk about, okay, like where's the starting point? And then it moves like between own eight, nine picks, so I kind of like this player. Right. Or how does that type of deal of that magnitude shake down? Well, I think a lot of times teams try to find a comparable player, which is not always easy to be done. And it, it, not everybody has the, the equal assets to those deals. But I think a lot of times that's how, you know, you start to talk about, is there a fit there? Is this somewhere that, you know, in terms of what they're looking for on the other side of it too? And, um, 
I think the way that deal came about, it was just kind of looking at past trades, you know, that have been with a world junior player, you know, with that have come from winning a championship, like, you know, different things like that. And, and you're trying to kind of see where there's a fit on your side of it. And, and for us and any of those big deals, like we've never looked at the deadline, like, cause we didn't want our organization to be a spot where every December kids either think 10 guys are moving out or 10 players are coming in. Like you want to make sure that the group's got you in that situation and if you can tweak, and, and I think Jordan Sandbrook and, and Taylor Raj were great pieces for us to add in, and they were, they were massive for us in the playoffs, but it didn't change our culture, didn't change you know, what got us to that situation. I think it really paid off for us. But to go back to your original question, I think you know, a lot of times when you're talking about it, it's more so you know, what years are maybe you're filling in for them. Maybe they have some holes in their draft grid and, and trying to see what, what, what they're looking for because sometimes in your head and a fan's head what two teams might make sense you know, you pick up the phone and you talk to that. They don't see it that way. So I think it's always it's always interesting how those deals kind of come come together. I gotta say, Kyle, it's a, it's a little bit. I'm thinking as we're talking here, and I remember when you came into this league. I, I covered you as a player in this league. You're a second rounder to the Oshawa Generals, and barely ten years after you graduate out of this league, uh, you're a general manager of a really successful franchise. Was there a point in time after your playing career where you you set your sights on becoming a GM, or how did this all come about for Kyle Raftus? Yeah, I think for myself, I, I went to school after I was done playing and used my OHL scholarship, and you, you kind of just you know you have some minor pro opportunities but for me I was kind of just very excited about the whole the entire development path like it wasn't something that I, I said I have to be a general manager you know you want to be involved in hockey you get that I found you go through school and you have those first couple of years where you're just getting focused you're thinking about different opportunities but then you start to get that burn a little bit of yeah you know what you do miss the game a little bit and you know what can I do to be a part of it and everyone always thinks of just generic titles like you know head coach scout general manager but they don't know all these other layers that are now coming out in hockey and I think it's something that the more you learn and get an understanding of it and I think when I got the job at the OHL league office it kind of just you really got to see how a lot of things work behind closed doors and I think it just the more interested I got and just seeing how you know development of players and team building and as a player and it it sounds you know odd to say now but when you're going through it you think every team operates the same everybody's looking for the same player they're going off the same draft like it's kind of you just think it's just luck how everything's working and I think just to kind of get on that side of it and kind of create a, a little bit on your own I think was kind of fascinating to me and when this opportunity opened and they approached me about it it was something that I had never thought about if you would ask me even two weeks before this came about that I thought it'd be the general manager Sue Grant's not a chance like I just didn't even wasn't even on my thought process but for me it just became a it's definitely a challenge and it's kind of something that I was really excited about so I think that's when it it started for me and sometimes being a former second round and us not picking, they think I'm picking on that round just <laughs> as, a, as, as, a, as my development pathway. But that's not the case, I promise you. And I, I think it's something that the more picks you can have in a draft is obviously better. But yeah, I get a lot of being a former high second round pick. They think I'm taking it out on that round as a whole. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you mentioned your time at the league and in player development and recruitment and stuff. How much do you take from that experience to now as a general manager? Because you hadn't been a general manager before. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it was massive for me because you get to meet and the way they kind of do it. You talk to every team and they'll you know educate black and white how the OHL works. Obviously, each team's going to do their own kind of. Um, description of how they operate but you kind of take everybody through so that way there's no gray area for any high-end player coming through they understand every how everything works and then you sit a lot with kind of the higher-end families let's say and it really just listening in those conversations of what this this age athlete coming through now what their parents are looking for 
you know, from whether they're American player, a kid from Toronto, a kid from, they're all over. So you get a little grasp of what they're looking for and what the misinformation is maybe on their side of it. So for to be in those conversations that, you know, I, I think it's been massive in, in terms of having that experience and getting an understanding of what they're really looking for as a 15 high-end OHL player. Obviously, with a long bus ride up here yesterday, I had some time to do some reading, and uh, there's a lot of ink about the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds right now. Last year, you make the run to the OHL Championship, and we've already talked about the deal you made to get there, so there was focus on the team. Would you rather be flying under the radar this year? Because everybody's talking about you. Yeah, it's it's kind of coming in a little bit of a hurry here in the last two weeks, because I think for a long time, it was everybody was just waiting for the air to come out of the tire mm-hmm. a little bit, and I think, yeah, the young guys are playing well, but let's see how long it can kind of last with it. But it's kind of a unique spot for us, because I think last Last year, it was we were a little bit of a team kind of running away with it at this point. I think we clinched uh, first overall almost in February. So it was kind of something that was coming up. And I think for us this year, it's it's a little bit of a hunger because there's some players on the team that have only really been a part of good teams and they, they still have a little swagger to them. And now we have a group of young players that are around them that that's all they know as well, too. So it's something that I think they feel like they've been a little bit discredited. And it's kind of an interesting side to be on the underdog side this year. I don't. It's funny we're laughing about a team first in the division as an underdog <laughs> this year. That's how good the season was last year. And us being up here during that Western Conference final, we got a chance to kind of go around town, and it was unbelievable to go around this town. Posters of Sioux Greyhound symbols up in every single business. Let's go Hounds printed out everywhere. It's all anyone was talking about. How have you, or how has the city or town changed now as you guys are uh, leading up to another playoffs? Yeah, I think it's it's always been a great fan base. Like we, it's the crowds are always great. You always have, you know, you can just walk through a mall and you can overhear people talking about their thoughts on the Greyhounds and you know whether it might be you know line up or like. There's a lot of passion here, so I I think that's always going to be there. But I think last year it it really re-energized a little bit of. There was a little bit. And just be, me being an outsider, not being from the Sioux originally, when you came up here, there was a little bit of always waiting for something to happen. You know, even sometimes it would be, well, do the kids still want to play? And and I, I think there's a little bit of an embracement last year of just, hey, we are a premier team. The kids do want to play here. This is, you know, as a city, this is something that, you know, we're everyone knows where we are on a map but it's like there's there, a lot of pride came out in terms of their greyhounds and being on a national stage and obviously you know getting to the finals this is the first time any game had been played in may in this building which is something that you know a lot of people take for granted and they talk about you know some years past but it was kind of cool to see people getting back into it and really believing in it so i think it was it was an unbelievable year to be a part of you know you set a lot of records and it, it just to see what it means to a lot of people here because there's no other team here this is it's a sioux greyhound there's not a you're not going to another, watch another team play like this is this is this is the show in in our town here and they're real proud of it and it was great to see them kind of embrace that even further I was going to ask the same thing about how the town likes the team because of last year. So, look, we've had a lot of this guy's time, and there's Muyos waiting downstairs. Uh, I, I got a real quick one. Muyos. I know. I know. Okay. I know. Real quick. We talked about last year, Game Seven, Western Conference Final, double OT. That whole game. What is going through your mind as a general manager? I couldn't even tell you right now because I, I feel like during those we went into a ton of overtime games, even getting up to that point. It just seemed like it's in the back of your head you know you're you're happy like we talk about a little bit internally about how we're playing in terms of different things that we're tracking and what's an efficient game for us this is what we're 
but it, when you go into double overtime, it doesn't matter. Like at that point, it's just you don't you don't want to see one bad bounce or something just crush this entire season. And it's you're at home ice. You could just feel it, like the nerves. Sometimes, obviously, home ice is huge, but sometimes it's like you can feel the weight of everybody just like sitting on pins and needles and being in double overtime. Yeah, it was. You feel very helpless as a general manager. You feel like you're doing a lot of official business while overtime is going on, but there's really nothing you can do. So you, it's almost more nerve wracking, I think, than being a player because you're just, you have, as I like to think I have a, some say of the outcome, but once you're in overtime, that's really, there's nothing I can do outside of kind of sit and watch like everybody else. But no, it was, it was great to, to see happen and, you know, see Jack Apaka score who, who, you know, came here as a 15 year old, you know, signed, went back, you know, trusted us and his plan became an NHL draft. And it was kind of cool to see him be the, the hero there. And obviously he's been, uh, uh, he just got off to a, a good start there in the American league as well. But yeah, for us, it was kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, those are exciting games to be a part of and even better when you can be on the right side of it, obviously. For our Ranger fans listening, sorry I brought that up. No, you know, it's a good last <laughs> question. And even on the other side of it, not that we have any influence over things either, but that game will forever be etched in our memories and Rangers fans too, even though, for that side, they were on the wrong end of it. But what a game, what drama we had in this building, yes. what, nine months ago. Crazy. Yeah. Even yeah. that entire series felt oh. like a month. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, like yeah. just, you're either playing or you're on the road. Like, it was just kind of like, and, and I think this isn't any slight to anybody else, but between, like, that series and our own sound that went to Game 7, we won, like, I just think emotionally, uh, we ran into some injury problems in the next series, but it was just, like, those were two of the best teams I think in the league last year. We had to go to seven games against them, and within 26 days, you know, so it's 14 games. So it just and with the miles that we got on, even even though you're flying, once you get to a certain point, it it takes a toll. Even I, I was like as a general manager, and uh, like I said, I'm not out there, you know, playing in hard minutes like a lot of those guys. But yeah, it's it's tough. The Western Conference, as you guys know, it's it's never there's no easy nights, you know, even like even in the regular season, and when you get down to the the nitty-gritty of those playoffs it's every team's deep and there's there's no there's no tough kind of just well let's find a soft spot here and we'll just walk through it it's it's tough so that that was a great series though i think eventually the gas tank becomes empty so let's go fuel up with muyo's (laughs) chicken wings thanks a lot kyle we appreciate (laughs) this thank you guys i really appreciate it when you took over your talk show on 570 news the mike farwell show i'll never forget the opening and i wanted to listen because i thought this is the dream job for mike farwell the perfect spot for him to be i want to hear what his first segment is what is he going to tackle first off and the one thing i took from it was transparency so in full transparency, as we do this podcast, we have nine minutes before we are on air to 570 News. Our producer, Christy Taylor, is back home. As you can hear, Fast Freddy is getting a set here in Old Town. We need to wrap this up and go to our actual job that we get paid for. Oh, we don't get paid for this? Not yet. Sponsors available. Please let us know. At Farwell underscore OHL and at underscore Chris Pope. And by the way, as Freddy's talking, welcoming the crowd to this game, there are about 30 people here. I'm not kidding. This is a regular July afternoon and on sound. Give them time. I'm Farwell. And I'm Pope. And that is the Farwell and Pope Podcast. This has been the Farwell and Pope Podcast, posted weekly. If you have questions, topics, or a story you would like to be covered, simply email mike at 570news.com. The Farwell and Pope Podcast originates from the 570 News Studio in Kitchener. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617. 
the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.